Hello, Hoopaholics, and welcome to the Box and One Podcast, Episode 3. I'm Coach Spins here, joined today by a longtime friend and some, somebody that knows the Denver Nuggets more intimately than what I would say is anybody out there. Adam Mares from DNVR Sports. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. What did you say, Hoopaholics? Is that what it is? Is that what you said? Definitely. <laughs> Hello, Hoopaholics. It's our our primary uh, sign on here with the podcast every single time. So thank you for for having us, uh, you know, joining us here on the Box and One Pod. But but Adam, uh, first question that I ask for for every one of our guests here, you're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball. Okay. Do you foul? No. No, I don't. I, this, I'm so glad you asked me this one um, because there is a principle to it. It's smart to foul. I get it. It makes the sense that right answer is yes if you only care about winning. But I have this weird thing about the integrity of the game that it doesn't necessarily make sense. But to me, it was not the, the rules were not invented to allow teams to strategically foul in that position. In my opinion, it is a a flaw in the rule book of, of basketball that allows for this to happen. So I try to honor the integrity of the game. I say, no, you get a stop, um, but you do not foul. Well, I'll take it one step further then. Do you think the rules committee at the NBA level, at least should implement something that deters fouling in those situations? One of the things that's interesting about this, the concept of, of this is that the NBA has gotten really smart over the last 10, 15 years. I, I really and, and I have a show with George Carl. I talked to him a lot about what it was like in the 90s and the 80s and, and different things. And the decision making was less heavy. It wasn't as it was almost an art form more than a science. Basketball is becoming more of a science, I feel. And one of the things that goes along with that is how do we take advantage of the rules of the game? And the, as much as it is smart, I do think there's like diminishing returns on the enjoyment of the sport when you solve it in, in that sort of way. So um, if the rules committee were to make a rule, smart people would get together and figure out a way to take advantage of that rule. And I just think it goes on and on and on and, and some things can't be fully solved. That's probably one of them. Yeah, no, that, uh, that certainly makes sense. And, and look, you and I could dive into the weeds on all this stuff, basketball, all we want, but the reason you're here, first and foremost, you're the resident expert on the Denver Nuggets. So uh, we started this podcast a couple weeks ago on episode one. We had Caitlin Cooper on from Indy. Yeah, she's great, man. She's fantastic. And, and something that she and I went back and forth on were that sleeper kind of dark horse title team, right? Last year, it might've been the Phoenix Suns where they rose yeah. literally from the ashes of a franchise and nice. became, you know, an, an NBA championship contender. And we, we asked each other who might be this year's version that people are maybe slightly overlooking, but have all of the pieces and components together to make a run. And she really turned me on to the Denver Nuggets as being the right team for that. And that's stuck in my head for the last few weeks, despite what's going on with Jamal Murray, despite some of the young guys that are fighting for minutes and the, the depleted backcourt that we saw during the playoffs last year, this is a team with all of the potential to make a really, really deep run. So no better way to start off the season as you know regular season action tips off less than a week from now then to get you here to talk a little bit more about Denver so I think first and foremost we got to start with Jamal Murray right because that's the x factor right now his health when he returns what does he look like what is the scuttlebutt that you're hearing right now in terms of where he's at with his rehab what the Nuggets are expecting out of him and and just generally speaking what you think Murray can contribute to the team this year well, there isn't any scuttlebutt. I mean, that's, that's the thing about, about an injury like this and really about a season like this for the Nuggets because you're right, he is the ultimate X factor. How do we predict what happens with the Nuggets when we don't know what's going to happen with their second best player in Jamal Murray? You know, expectations, I think, have been that he would be back sometime around the 1st of March, give or take a month. I mean, you really don't know. There's so much wiggle room there. If, if he was not healthy and back by the end of March, you're talking about two weeks before the playoffs begin. And at that point, what, how could you really come back? The team is in a different space at that point. So there really isn't an update right now. You know, he's doing workouts by his account. He knows he can't. There's certain things they're not allowing him to do, like play live basketball and stuff right now. But he says he feels like he could if he were free to, knowing that's not smart to do so. He just says he feels healthy enough that he could. So um, it's a huge mystery. March... I've heard some people say March would be March 1st would be ambitious. I've heard other people say maybe even early January, but I think the most people seem to think that the 1st of March is the most likely 
time you can expect him back. And that's always a strange time, like you alluded to, to return from an injury and just reintegrate yourself with the team. I think the closest example we may have had over the last decade or so is when Paul George came back from his injury and got, what was it, five or six games under his belt yeah. for the season. And, and that was different because the, the Pacers weren't in playoff contention. This Nuggets team, even without Murray, is probably good enough to, to push for a spot here in the Western Conference where he essentially becomes gravy on top of that. And, and that's a really fascinating way to reintegrate him. You know, you mentioned at the very top of this and in, in talking with George Carl, the changing of basketball from more of an art form to a science. And I think health related studies, sports science around yeah. player injuries is a huge part of that. You know, 10, 15 years ago, I still remember a time when if a player suffered a torn ACL, there was so much worry about what right. they would ever look like when they came right. back. That's not really the case anymore. It's very, right. you know, streamlined and mechanical, and we know the player is going to get himself back into shape. But there's always that process of playing your way into it, right? Okay. You don't just recover from an ACL, and as soon as you hit the court, you're fully back to being the player that you're used to. And, and again, March, April, playoffs starting, that doesn't give Murray a ton right. of time to figure out how trustworthy his wheel really is. Yeah. And that's that last part is the part like the, the health of him. I'm less concerned about because by all accounts, and I've even talked to, you know, sports, sports, doctors, sports, uh, surgeons about this, the health part, you know, he should be pretty good. It's the, how effective can he be? There's I'm sure as probably sometime around January, he'll start to be able to do some live basketball one-on-one, -on -one, you know, controlled setting, and they'll be trying to work his muscles up in this or that, but you really can't, at that point in the season, number one, March 1st is two weeks after the all-star break. So it's, it, it would be one thing if you came back from the all-star break mentally, that's sort of a, okay, this is a new season with a post all-star break portion. But if he actually sits out for a week and a half, two weeks, and then comes back on the first or, you know, the seventh or something like that, you're coming into a portion when the rest of the team is one in mid season form and two mentally already ramping up towards playoff speed and to go from zero to ramping up for playoff speed is difficult. Then there's the touch. I know Zach Levine is a close comp, in my opinion, for Jamal Maria. They have somewhat similar games. When Zach Levine came back from his ACL injury, similar time frame, he couldn't shoot the ball very well. 33% three-point shooter. I'm sure that had to do with fatigue in his legs and timing. So it's not just a question of when will he be healthy and when will he be back, but how much time does he need? And what is a realistic, if he came back, March 1st, maybe he comes back February 15th. Is that enough time for him to be ready for a playoff? I, I don't even know if that would be enough time to be honest. Yeah. It, it's really hard to try to, you know, armchair quarterback this and prognosticate what we think yep. could or, or should happen yep. with Murray, but definitely a development to watch where if he comes back and he looks anything close to what he looked like in the bubble in last year before the injury, then the nuggets are getting a huge shot in the arm. For their and roster Adam, you, heading into you know this. Everybody likes to take victory laps for their predictions early in the season. And somebody's people are going to predict one thing or the other. With the Nuggets, nobody knows. This isn't about how well can you project what's going to happen. It's there's one thing you just don't know anything about. And if he comes back healthy and he looks great, I think the Nuggets are going to be really good in the playoffs. If he doesn't, who knows? Probably probably they're going to have some sort of fatal flaw that at some level will catch up to him. Sure. So let's run with that idea then. Like, you know, a healthy Murray is clearly the first thing that the, the Nuggets need. Right. But beyond that, what is there on this roster that you think either might be missing or needs to develop just a half step greater in order to push them to that championship caliber? Well, I think the number one thing you look at is the chemistry between Nikola Jokic and Michael Porter Jr. Jokic and, and Murray, you know, Jokic is the MVP, great player, one of the, I think, five best players in all of the NBA. But the chemistry he has with Jamal Murray really unlocks everything Jokic does. He's just, those two guys are, are in such, um, you know, th they share the same brain out there on the court. Michael Porter's a different story. And the question for the season this year will be, how well do those guys become greater than just, just the, the greatness of their own individual play? Because I feel like Michael Porter's an incredible talent. Jokic is obviously incredible talent. But those guys have a little bit of a your, yours, mine, and, and they don't always blend. And especially in the playoffs last year, they didn't really have a go-to thing between the two of them. Maybe it's unrealistic to expect that. I've asked some of the players on the team, does Michael Porter need to 
work on a pick and roll or some kind of two-man game. And a lot of people said, no, that's not his game. So maybe I'm often even thinking that those two need to come together. I just know that Murray and Jokic, when they're both on, they elevate to being able to single-handedly best some pretty good teams. You know, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, uh, uh, Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, they've out-dueled based on the, the talents of those two guys working together so perfectly. Michael Porter and Yoke don't quite have that. And this season will be a really big success if those two develop that kind of chemistry. And diving into Porter a little bit more, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up that bit about some of the other players that you've been able to ask about what he might need to do because a lot of his, his scoring, and it's prolific, and he's an unbelievable shooter, I, I think very deserving of the contract extension that he got but he doesn't do a ton of it off the bounce or created right. for himself. Yeah. It's very much dependent on flow of the offense, dribble penetration from others, double teams on Jokic and ball movement to find him. It, you know, if there is not an expectation for him adding that element to his game or being something that, Hey, Murray's out. This is the time to workshop your off the dribble scoring and show that you can add this to your game. Where does he continue to improve the next few years? Because his offense and his shot making is already pretty polished and refined. Right. I think, well, number one, you look at defensively and some of this is maybe he has limitations. He's really high center of gravity, high hips. So maybe there's certain like mobility issues. I don't know. But to me, I just look at it and I go, his defensive awareness is a problem. And even in the preseason this year, you watch it and you go, this is year three and you're making mistakes that are sort of a year one type thing, blown rotations, lack of communication. So number one on the defensive end, because at the moment, if you were to ask me, how does Denver win? They win by being a top two or three offense because their defense is probably at best going to be 11 or 12. Um, but so number one, defensively, just, just kind of getting a better feel for it. But as far as, you know, offensively, that is the interesting question about him. And, and I would actually turn this question back on you because I, I'm in the weeds with all of this. Michael Porter is such a good, as you mentioned, catch and shoot guy, running off screens, cutting, all of that. Is the onus then on him to integrate himself into an offense and, and develop that chemistry more? Is it on Jokic, the, the hub of the offense, to say, hey, here's the spots. This is I'm going to try to look for you in this type of thing. Or is it on Michael Malone to develop an offense that is more predicated the way Steph Curry is used, where there's a lot of using him to run around either as a decoy or just to shift the gravity on the court? I don't, I don't, I'm sure it's all three. But the balance of that to me is such a unique question. Yeah. And it's, I think at full strength with Murray and Jokic there, I think there's less desire to try to integrate Porter a little bit more just because a, you know, it works and B there's only so many mouths you can feed with the ball in their hands, having an elite spot up threat who isn't asked to do too much and has the game very simple for him is a way of maximizing Porter's output. But right. I continue to think that this is a time to really just figure out where his ceiling is, right? Murray is out. You have the baseline level of talent where you're probably going to win enough games to be in the top six and not have to worry about the play-in, right? That's knock on wood. I, I know we're all we're all sweating a little bit when you hear those guarantees, but I think the Nuggets are a talented enough team that that's where they should be. So the rest of the time this season, especially in lineups when Porter is on and Jokic is off, I think that's a time to try to try to play around a little bit and say, okay, can he create if we make him the focal point, whether it's off screening actions, off some more movement into a pick and roll, having him come off handoffs, you mentioned Steph Curry and gravity. What is his gravity like if he is a movement shooter and he is the main attraction right. in right. those areas? This is the time to figure it out so that when Murray does come back or when you're looking ahead to next year, you say, here's how we have to use all three of these guys and ratchet it up a notch so that this offense even climbs to a higher level. 100% agree on all accounts. I, I'm just so curious to see how much Denver changes. One of the questions I've been asking Coach Malone, but also the players, is how much does the identity of the team need to change? And they all feel pretty out, adamant, not at all. From an outsider, I feel I would feel like quite a bit. So that, that's one area where I kind of look at this and go, okay. And it is interesting if you look at Michael Porter's numbers with Jokic on the court with him or without him his usage and efficiency goes up without Jokic. And that's an interesting sort of trend for me that I'm, I just, I, I kind of keep my eye on. And I always want to go back to the balance of playmakers, right? I think that Malone is pretty wise in his rotations and tends to stagger the minutes of Monte Morris with Jokic so that there's one kind of guy who feeds everybody else on the floor at a time. 
Right. And Porter probably plays really, really well off of a guy like Morris. I would, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would suspect that their two man lineup uh, is, is pretty strong in terms of offensive output. Yeah. So. I don't have the numbers either. That'd be an interesting one to look up though. Yeah. Well, you brought up Michael Malone and, and, you know, I'm a coach by trade. It's, it's not just my day job, kind of my life job. As I say, this is what I do when I have a moment to breathe, but uh, always curious to see what the feedback is on a coach like him. And, you know, from my measure, I think he's done a fantastic job. Tactically speaking, I like his leadership style. I think the players buy into him. He's very authentic, it seems. Yeah. Um, he's also in a unique situation now where one of his lead assistants in Wes Unseld Jr. has departed. And everything that I've read about Unseld and kind of seen from the outside is that he was really hands-on tactically, great with player development and getting a lot of their guys into rotation caliber players, as well as handling the defense in, in, in a large regard. So, you know, what are your thoughts on Malone in the second part of that? How much of that changes now that Unseld might not be in the fold this year? That's one of those questions I really can't answer. I, I mean, it's so hard to know without being on a staff, what, what exactly the, um, the balance of responsibility and credit is amongst the coaches. What I can tell you is that Wes Unseld has been the, the, unofficial defensive coordinator for the, for the Denver Nuggets. It's not his real title, but, you know, Malone has, has joked that that's more or less his focus. So him being gone, you do think, okay, there's a new voice. I think the same system, but a new voice sort of uh, looking at that, teaching it, and also obviously correcting problems as they arise. And who knows what, what that looks like, um, you know, going forward. So it, it is a legitimate question. I'm more interested in, in what it looks like with the loss of Paul Millsap, who has been an anchor for that defense as long as, as uh, Wes Unsell Jr. was at the helm of the defense. He was the anchor. And then what, does, what value does Aaron Gordon provide maybe that Millsap didn't? Uh, what weaknesses does he have maybe that Will, Millsap didn't on that end of the floor? So to me, same system. They should know it by now. I can't imagine too much changes. Uh, they have a bit, I know, as you know, a bit of a unique way of defending pick and rolls with Jokic. They, they do something a little unique with him. So in doing so, I think they should know what to do, but there's new pieces and that's what's interesting. Yeah. You know, Millsap is one of those guys that just so, so, so solid in pretty much yep. every aspect of the game. And it's hard to predict how much of an impact his absence is going to have because it's, it's going to be felt in every single realm, even in ways that we can't see. But by my measure, the addition of Aaron Gordon to this roster was really smart with Michael Porter Jr. in mind because it right. gives them the opportunity to have a more switchable three and four combo where the league is trending more towards having those positions be interchangeable. Right. You know, I think maybe three or four years ago, it looked like it was going to be twos, threes, and fours. And now right. it's very much threes and fours and a lot of one and two hybrid combo guards right. that work with yeah. each other. So now that the three, four, uh, archetype is established Gordon can can guard both of those really really well and almost save Michael Porter Jr. from being exposed on ball a little bit more so I think that was a really really smart addition by the front office uh, I just I'm a big big fan of Michael Malone always have been because he's he's just a genuine guy and yeah. you know Larry Bird used and I think we all know this by now used to not believe that coaches made a, made a huge difference. And, and when he was with the Pacers, believed in frequent changeover. Right. You know, Malone should not have that same pressure of, okay, we haven't made the NBA finals by year six. It's time to get a voice who's maybe a little bit more experienced, who's been there and can lead a team to that level. I think what he's done is maximize this group, have a great pulse of the locker room every single time. And again, the continuity and player development that Denver has had the last four or five years has really impressed me. Uh, every single player that they've had that has come through and been here for two plus years, I think turns into a rotation caliber guy. And that doesn't, doesn't happen if it isn't Malone who's kind of overseeing this process. The exceptions to that rule have been very few. I mean, Emmanuel Moutier, Tyler Lydon, Trey Lyles, that's about it that you can look at and say they didn't meaningfully improve in their time with the, with the Nuggets. And if you go through the list of guys who did improve, it's, it's a really, really, really long list. So uh, I would agree with you on that. With Michael Malone, I think the thing you're you're hinting at here, because I think Larry, what Larry Bird said was, no coach can last more than three years. He, he thinks after three years they've lost sort of like their their voice doesn't carry the same weight, which is three years is not very long. That's a very very short window of time. I think what Michael Malone probably understands the sentiment there, 
But what he brings is institutional knowledge. He was raised by a coach. He's been around coaching his I mean, since he was in diapers. So he's a guy that I think it's underrated the degree to which he understands those dynamics and maybe is in some ways immune to those dynamics. And I think another factor of this that's changed since the late 90s when Larry Bird made those statements is player movement is a lot more frequent these days. That's true. Guys are changing, changing teams more. So the continuity in the locker room of players means your voice doesn't necessarily get found out after three years. Just one of those fascinating things. But another, another factor is you've got a guy in Nikola Jokic who is just not a problem on that front. And I think that's a rarity. I mean, when he, I would imagine if you gave Larry Bird some truth serum, what he's really saying is star players lose sort of the the coaches can't get through the stars after a certain number of years. But I think as was with Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich, if you have a leader who sort of is like, Hey, no, this is the coach. He has a job. I have a job that understands that dynamic. Maybe it gets easier for everyone else to fall in line. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So Let's shift gears a little bit now and, and talk a little bit about how the Nuggets might match up with some of the other Western Conference contenders. And for the sake of making this simple on both of us and, and everybody who's listening, let's, let's make an assumption that Jamal Murray is going to be healthy and the okay. Jamal Murray that we're used to. So if that is the case, you know, I think the, the top team on everybody's radar right now is the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, there are so many questions about how they fit together with Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and, and a slew of veterans who maybe two of them appear to be wings. But what's your thought on how the Nuggets might match up with the Lakers if they see them in a postseason series? Well, the Lakers have been a tough matchup for the Nuggets in the Anthony Davis era. I mean, Anthony Davis is one of those players that is a just tough on yoke. It's a little bit, some of these bigs around the league, there's a paper, rock, scissors when you get to the absolute top. You know, we talk about Embiid, Draymond Green, Jokic, Anthony Davis, you know, Jokic has some of those guys' number. Anthony Davis, I think, has Jokic's number a little bit. And to a lesser extent, uh, Dwight Howard, who a couple of years ago just really got under his skin, drew a lot of fouls on Jokic, and, and the foul trouble became a, a storyline in that Lakers series two years ago in the bubble. Right, yeah. So I think the Lakers are tough. Here's one thing. Here's one trend I've noticed with the Nuggets over the last two years. They seem to dominate great teams who have great offense and mediocre defense. And they seem to struggle against great teams that have a great defense and a mediocre offense. And the Lakers are the latter. They're a team that can really defend, well, at least in years past, we'll see about this year, but they've been able to really hunker down and defend. And, and that sort of cuts the nuggets off at the knees. Whereas if you get like a Portland trailblazer, such a great offense, Denver in a playoffs is going to outgun them and get just enough stop stops to get by. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right on the money there. And, you know, Frank Vogel mentioned it with this Lakers team. He has so many new faces and new people coming in that defensively it's going to be a work in progress, but he's such a fantastic defensive coach. I think they're going to get to that elite level by the time they make the playoffs. Um, You know, we mentioned earlier having Aaron Gordon be able to spell Michael Porter Jr. of those tough forward matchups. That's where what I'm curious to see is whether the Lakers might go a little bit bigger against a team like Denver and try to cross match where Davis might guard Jokic on the other end. And then they put a true big man, you know, maybe Dwight Howard spends some time guarding Aaron Gordon. Yep. And on the, on the flip side of that, now Porter has to guard one of LeBron or AD. Right. Yep. That that would be fascinating. I think it would play out very similar to that. Cause you would say like, okay, Aaron Gordon can go on LeBron and okay. That's a good matchup. Cause I think Aaron Gordon's really good. And he has the strength. One of the few guys that actually has the strength to battle LeBron, not that he's stronger or as strong, but closer than most, most wing defenders. But I think you're right. There's just counters where if they go big or super small, it changes the way Den- it changes Aaron Gordon's effectiveness on the other end. So uh, Lakers to me are always until LeBron falls off. The Lakers are always a difficult matchup for the Nuggets specifically. Yeah, and, and look, offensively for the Lakers, no one knows right now. How much yeah. are they going to be able to get in play in transition? Do Westbrook and LeBron coexist in the front court? What is their spacing like in those moments they do go big? And, and they're going to have days where they just can't shoot the basketball. So they're, right. they're certainly beatable. And even though they're probably the preseason favorites in the West, they're beatable. But Another team that, you know, you brought up uh, Draymond Green as being one of those kind of centerpieces defensively who might be able to match up a little bit with, with Jokic. What's your take on the Warriors right now? Because that's, 
that's always one of those, uh, not to say they're in the same position as Denver, but if they find themselves clicking and healthy by the time the playoffs come, that could be a really dangerous team again. I love the Warriors, um, and I like Denver's matchup with them. You know, Yoke is a guy that, this is what I mean by the paper, rock, scissors. I think Yoke can handle Draymond Green. Draymond Green is so good because of how strong and how well he can guard the post against most guys. But Yoke's a massive guy. I mean, it's underrated how big he is. And, and, and also how good he is at using that advantage. So if you put a small guy like a Draymond Green on him, who's maybe better against the Nurkic or against uh, Gobert, or one of these guys that just doesn't have the footwork and touch to, to take advantage of him, okay, that works. Yeah, you can make, him, you can make that a low-efficiency post-up. Yoke's too big. He, he, yeah. I think in a playoff series, he would feast on him. The thing about a Nuggets Warriors matchup, though, is that I, I can, it's funny that we mentioned Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter. I'm not sure that's a series for both guys. That might be a series where uh, PJ Dozier plays small forward a lot, and you go with three basically guards and you switch one through four. And is that Michael Porter series? Is that Aaron Gordon series? Do you mix and match that a little bit? I don't know. But I think that's more, that's one where Denver probably has to make an adjustment, but they would succeed with that adjustment. Yeah, look, the, the Warriors have pretty much committed to in crunch time going small. And we've known that for a long time. You know, they've got Kevon Looney. Maybe James Wiseman gives them a little bit more of a punch during the regular season. But when the, when the chips are on the line, they're putting Draymond at the five. They're right. going really, really small and having a ton of shooters and playmakers out there. And they can do that this year with Iguodala, Wiggins, Draymond as essentially their three, four, five. And right. that's that in itself is a challenging guard for the Nuggets. But I'm inclined to agree with you. Denver matches up fairly well because I think no matter what that lineup is, Jokic is so big and so good at controlling the pace of a game. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen a big man who can yeah. speed up and slow down the game and control the tempo the way that he can. Right. Uh, I think that's the key to beating the Warriors is making sure that you're not getting caught up in this helter-skelter pace that they want to play at when they go super small. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, absolutely. They're going to be a tough team, but I do think that's a matchup that, that favors Denver. It's just, it would be weird though, if yeah. Michael Porter was reduced in his role in that series, or even Aaron Gordon was reduced in his role. And I think one of those two guys would probably, that's a series where one of those guys would play way lower minutes than they would in any other series. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Golden State's roster is going to look different by the postseason than it does right now. Uh, yeah. They're going to be an attractive destination for some veteran signee late in the, in the process, or they're going to deal a couple of their younger guys and try to speed up to get in that window. Almost a lock. I think it's yeah. underrated how, that aspect of the Warriors right now. Cause I think everybody looks at them and thinks, Oh, they're a five seed, a six seed. I agree. They're, I think they're a sneaky good five or six seed, but they're, they're probably somewhere around there, but they have some chips they could catch in that would really make them a, a one or two seed caliber team. If they go that way, by the way, you mentioned Kevon Looney and, and Wiseman. I, I didn't mention them because that's, that's not the path to beating Jokic. Like that, yeah. Jokic will turn those guys into baby food um, <laughs> in a playoff series. I think. Yeah, I I'm, I'm not one who disagrees, uh, <laughs> but you know, with, with golden state, I think they're waiting to see how healthy clay Thompson is. And as right. soon as they get the green light on that, they're going to be aggressive. They're going to make, they can't develop Kaminga and Wiseman and Moody while trying to win a championship while those guys are around. And when push comes to shove, they're going to go all in. Yeah. So, but the curious team for me and the one I have the, the least feel for is the Phoenix Suns and how they match up with Denver, because I think health is obviously going to be a, a huge factor in that series, but, uh, Phoenix's backcourt is incredibly, incredibly good. And they beat a lot of teams in the postseason by taking and making the elbow and mid-range jumpers that almost any NBA defense is daring people to, to give. And yeah. that's something, the push-pull of that with, with Jokic is really, really interesting because the way that this defense has been constructed, you're right, it's a little bit unorthodox or wacky, but I don't know how versatile it can be in a postseason series when it might have to change based on the shots that CP3 and Booker make. But what's your take on, on the matchup between the two teams and, and how much does that worry you? It worries me a, a fair amount. I mean, Phoenix is a great team. There's a reason they went to the finals last year. One of those reasons, of course, they ran into some teams with some health issues. I mean, they, they had a bit, of, but I don't want to take away from how good they were. They were right. legitimately front court, back court depth. They have, they had a little bit of everything there. Great leadership, obviously. Um, 
so they're, they're a really good team. The one thing I will say about last year and why I think it's so hard to really know how good they are, they never had to adjust until they got to the finals. And when I say adjust, if you get to put your offensive lineups out there and you're not punished defensively, then it's easy. You get to keep going to the thing that works and you keep getting the exact shots you want. But in a playoff series, so many teams have to adjust and go away from their favorite lineups or their favorite thing because they have to make a comfort. We have to put this guy on the court because he stops down this guy or whatever, but we're a little compromised with our spacing or rebounding or whatever it is now. And that's the thing I'm curious about. You know, Denver wasn't just missing Jamal Murray last year. They were missing Will Barton and PJ Dozier. They were missing their one, two, and three uh, from the guard spots with Monte Moore sort of being the fourth of their top four guards, who also, by the way, had just come back from injury from in that series. So they, Denver, I think, wasn't able to punish or force the Suns to do anything creative or to put out any defensive-minded lineups. They got away with playing all offense and and torched absolutely torched Denver in the pick and roll. But I think Denver would have torched that team also right back. And, and they went they had played three regular season games last year. I think they all went to overtime. They were great games. Um, they were battles. Booker and Murray. You know, it was back and forth. And I think a playoff series with them looks a lot more like that, where the adjustments are interesting, but what, neither team gets to go to their um, ace cards every time down the court. Yeah, I agree. And and look, everyone kind of romanticized the steps forward made by DeAndre Ayton in the playoffs, especially late in the postseason. Right. Statistically, he really wasn't that different than what he was putting up in the regular season. Right. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how this contract dispute that they're having about his extension gets settled. But that's one of those areas that could come back in, into play where, you know, maybe the Suns are right on this and not thinking that he's a max contract guy. On the flip side, they probably have to give him a max contract anyway because right. it's better than losing him. So yeah. I don't know how Aiton matches up with Jokic when both sides are at full strength and he has to come out and guard Jamal Murray in the pick and roll or or really be more uh, perimeter bound. Like who did they have to guard in the pick and roll against Denver? Yeah, Faku, yeah. Austin Rivers, Rivers, Marcus Howard. Like this is the thing that when people talk about it was just Murray or what would Murray make? No, it was anybody capable of running a pick and roll deal outside of Monte Morris. And to me, I'm, I'm so with you because I like Aiton. I think he's a real, I like centers that can do different things. But this talk about, oh, defensively, he can be a shutdown guy. No, he, he had to guard the most one-dimensional offense anybody's ever seen uh, because Denver just didn't have the pieces that made them uh, dynamic. Yep. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating series. And just from a pure basketball standpoint, right, I'm not a Nuggets fan or a Suns fan. I would just love to watch those two teams do battle if they're Super at full fun. strength. Super fun. And the last team in the Western Conference that's been more of a regular season power is the Utah Jazz. I know there's geographically probably the, the most natural rivalry for the, the Nuggets yeah. to go right across the border there with Utah. But this is one of those strange matchups where I actually think it really, really favors the Nuggets very well. And I don't know if, if you agree with that or, or what you've seen in the past from how these two teams have played, but I just I really think that Denver is built to give Utah a lot of fits in a postseason series. Well, outside of games two, three, and four in the bubble last year, the ones that Utah won, Denver's dominated that matchup for three years. I, regular season, postseason, obviously. So I, I'm inclined to agree with you just on the numbers. In fact, it got so bad that last year, the the Jazz played a game where they put Rudy Gobert on somebody else. I don't remember if it was Michael Porter or Paul Millsap. If you have a guy who's known for defense and you put him off of his position – that shows you that you're at least in your own head about, yeah, we can't keep sticking with this. It's not working. So I tend to agree with you. Last year was the interesting year because Derek favors, weirdly, the, the, the Jazz have given Denver the most trouble with two bigs on the court where they would put, they would take Gobert off of Jokic, have a big body in favor, and then use Gobert basically to like roam and do this. Now, Denver's a little bit more, you know, they spread the court a little bit better now than they did uh, two years ago. Last year, the Jazz brought back Derek Favors, I thought, in part to prepare for Denver, and then they didn't match up with Denver. They got rid of Favors, and I'm curious to see how that dynamic plays out again should they meet in the playoffs, knowing they don't really have a second big to throw at Yoke. And you stole my thunder there because that was really the point that I was going to make, where both teams have evolved more towards a true four-out spacing where they don't right. have that inside-outside threat at power forward. 
And especially with Utah committing to that style, it's going to make it really hard for them to match up and make any tweaks. I think Gobert has to guard Jokic. And the more he's pulled away from the basket, traditionally, the harder it's been for the Utah Jazz to win games. Right. In theory, I think the Nuggets are better suited, again, with Murray healthy, big caveat, to handle the Jazz than they are ever before. Yeah. Well, if they do make it to the second round of the playoffs, it seems very likely that they're going to face at least one of those four teams. Uh, So, you know, we'll see how the the cards play out and and what rosters are the same or different, how health factors into this. But I think the Nuggets match up really, really well with a lot of teams atop the Western Conference. And that's why I think both Caitlin Cooper and I were really high on them making a a surprise run if health and everything factors in their way. It's entirely possible. That last if, though, is the one to me that I've been all sunshine and rainbows on the Nuggets. But that last one, we're, we're assuming Murray's healthy. And I just I think it's less likely than it is likely that he's healthy, but we'll see. We will see. Well, Adam, the last time you and I got together was right before the NBA draft. And we talked about some of the the options that might've been available for the Denver Nuggets in the later part of the first round. But as we mentioned earlier today, I think that they've done a fantastic job of developing younger talent, making sure that they're rotation caliber NBA ready and really thrive in the system that Denver needs them to be. in. so, uh, we have a strong following with the NBA draft here at the box and one, and I'm going to throw out a couple names for you that have okay. been either on the nuggets roster now or developing over the last couple of years, just to get your feel for what you think about them, how they're developing in Denver and what you see their long-term projection being the, the most obvious place to start is with a guy who killed it this, this preseason bones Highland. I mean, I love Bones. Uh, he's, I haven't been this excited about a player, not necessarily because of the upside. I mean, there's been guys, Michael Porter's upside has popped right off the, you know, you, you knew just watching him move and shoot that he was this head star potential. But Bones, I just love everything about him. He's got such a great attitude. He's got such a great personality. And his skill set, I knew he was a great shooter. That was well-documented. I knew he was a great scorer. That was well-documented. I am blown away at how smart of a player he is, how, how, how well he understands the angles, the timing, the rhythm. I mean, he runs the pick and roll and he's so good about changing up his speed, reading the second line of defense and tricking them really with hesitations and back dribbles and everything else, just to get the, the second line of defense to move out of position before attacking. The same goes for passes. He just, has this natural sort of feel for when to get guys up and then give the bounce pass or to look away to do this. I just, the timing and rhythm he plays with is so advanced for a rookie on top of the great shooting uh, and all the stuff we knew about him as a scorer and as a shooter. So uh, blown away, didn't love, it didn't really have feelings one way or other about the pick other than I thought he was a gunner, but watching him play, I think he's so much more of an all around guard than I anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, he's certainly fun. And, um, and, you know, I have a, a buddy who coached him at VCU and I, you know, I wasn't overwhelmingly high on bones through the pre-draft process. I had a lot of concerns defensively, which I know we'll, we'll talk about in a second here. Uh, but as after the nuggets made that draft pick and, and the, uh, the coach there, who's a friend of mine did see some of the, the comments that I had about bones. He texted me at just three words, you effed up. So uh, I think that's good news for you guys over there in Denver, but um, you know, what is your thought on the defense? Do you worry at all about how he is at the point of attack or how thin he is having to slide in and and maybe play some minutes early on in his career, guarding some more physical guys? Does, does that worry you or are you just so all in on Denver's offense that as long as we keep outscoring people and putting great offensive talents and shooters on the floor, we're going to be fine. I, I look at it, I think the wingspan is rated six nine wingspan. So he really has, he has some wide shoulders and some really long arms. And I think that helps him to play some passing lanes, get over screens and contest from behind on pick and rolls and things like that. So I think there is a little upside for him. I'm the biggest believer in the world. This has been my corner for two years now that individual defense in the NBA outside of the top 5% is not that important. And, and I don't mean that as like, Look, it is important. You got to contain. I just think so few guys can contain. There's a very small number of players that can actually keep Chris Paul in front of him or uh, Russell Westbrook in front. That The list is really small. So if you don't have that, it's how well can you develop a chemistry and a system that 
everybody is moving together. And look, Bones is behind on that too. He doesn't read the court as a help, helper very well right now. I mean, he looks like a rookie on that end. How well he develops is anyone's guess. He's not, I don't think he does not project to be one of those 5% Davion Mitchell, Drew Holiday types. That's like, okay, you could stick. He's going to make an impact at the point of attack. So he he's in that jumbled mess of everyone else where it's, let's see how well he can develop chemistry and, and understand the principles. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've always, I agree with you. I think that's a really astute point. Um, I've always worried more than anything about high waisted guys that defend mm. the point of attack yeah. because it's much harder for them to get their center of gravity low enough to whip their body around a, a screen if there's contact right. on it and then find their way in front. So even though he's probably one-on-one, -on -one, not that huge of a liability in keeping somebody in front. And again, if he's not elite, what does it really matter anyway? Right. But the sustained advantage that an offense can gain when a guy like Bones, who's a little bit more wiry, higher center of gravity, has to try to find his way around a screen and get back in the play. If he's not back tipping shots from you know, those positions when he's in a hostage uh, dribble situation and trying to contest a shot from behind, I think that teams are probably going to be able to carve Denver up in the pick and roll where it might even be smarter to play him more as a two and somebody who's guarding off ball in, in some instances. If you, to, to my point though, if you look at teams that have been great defensively, they don't always have guys that you stand out and say like, oh my God, lockdown defender or have been lockdown defenders on other teams. But you get, I mean, Utah's a good example of this where like Mike Conley, yeah, he's been a part of some really good defenses. Joe Ingles, but he's small. Like, you know what I mean? Like he doesn't have like a great frame to him. You look at a Joe Ingles even, and you think he's such a smart defender. That's what makes him good is his smart and his ability to read and, and play team defense. But you put him in a one-on-one -on -one game with, you know, King of the Hill or something, he's going to get cooked too. So I look at that and I go, none of those guys stick out as elite. I mean, Rudy Gobert obviously does, but none of the other guys stick out as elite but it all works together because of how well they work together, the system they have in place and the chemistry they've built over years. And Bones is going to have to be the Nuggets in general with Jokic at the center are going to have to be one of those teams. Yeah. Um, but he, so far he doesn't mess up abnormally much like a Michael Porter does, mm -hmm. um, but he also doesn't make plays like a Davion Mitchell does. Sure. Sure. And I, I think the, the Utah exception is a little bit different because they have Rudy Gobert, right? right. Like, yeah, they can get Gobert. away with playing so many, average or below average defenders because here all your job is to do is funnel him to Rudy and he'll take care of the rest like but but to your point on on teams that might not even have an above average defender turning into a really good group Memphis last year like they were mm. a really they were I think top five or six defensive they team. yeah they were mm. fifth in the NBA and oh. in, in the defensive rating I can't look at one player on that roster and say he's an elite defender like maybe right. Dylan Brooks but they're just, they were a really good collection of groups. So it's, it's certainly possible for the Nuggets to get to that point, or at least for Bones Highland, not to be a, a liability where he could still blend into a group that plays like that. Right. So what about Zeke Naji? Second year guy here in Denver, kind of an up and down season, hard to find minutes when the Nuggets have such a, a crowded and talented front court. But what is it that you've seen from, from Naji that kind of leads you in either a positive direction or, or maybe not as optimistic? Um, I'm this. I'm on the fence with Zeke Naji. I was really high on him at the end of last season. I love 40.5% three-point shooter. I mean, low volume, but shot looks so great. Textbook looking shot. The way he moves his feet defensively is, I mean, up top five, 95th percentile amongst bigs in terms of how smoothly he guards. And I think those things, not, you know, both of those things I have a, a fair amount of confidence in that those would translate should he get more minutes. His offense and his confidence in his offense has fallen off a cliff. Um, he's not a dynamic player. He's, I don't think he was ever going to be a guy that you would run pick and rolls for or post up or do any of that kind of stuff. He was supposed to be a knockdown shooter who can maybe just cut and rebound and do some of the basics. But his, he's a guy that I think is really struggling with confidence right now. And he's at a point when he needs to get over that hump. Because if he's going to get an opportunity, it might be his last good opportunity um, this season. It will come at some point. But if he plays like he did at summer league in preseason, he plays like a guy when he touches the ball on offense, something bad's about to happen. And um, it, it's going to sink him. I love the defensive upside. I hope that it can be unlocked. Um, but confidence is such a trick. It's such a fleeting thing in the NBA for young players. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, thinking back to the 2020 draft when Najee was taken, 
he was a guy that we looked at a little bit more as a second round guy than a first, mm. just simply because he's a great energy guy, rebounds, plays hard. The jumper form looks great, but it hadn't really extended to three point range at that point. And I'm yeah. always skeptical on buying, you know, everybody's agent says that their shot looks great in, in right, pre-draft workouts. So I don't, I don't put any stock into that stuff. I just tune all the noise out and go on the college film, but I never could figure out what it was that was going to be his great skill in the NBA, right? Is he a great rebounder? Is he a great defender? If so, is it in what context? Is he just a great energy guy? Does that put a ceiling on how he can contribute to a championship level team if he's not the right type of front court partner with Jokic? And I don't right. know if he is. So right. uh, I'm, I'm still a little bit lost as to where he fits in with this Nuggets team. He's got to be a 40% three-point shooter because I do think his defense is – it, it can become really, really strong to, to the point you could use him. I think he's still a, a bench player. Like I don't, I don't expect him to be a starter, but he could shoot. If he can shoot the corner three, then you could have him out there switching onto threes and fours in a, you know, in a nice defensive scheme. And I think he would be great, but I don't know that he'll ever provide a whole lot else. I don't think he's a dribble guy. I don't think he's a post-up guy. He does play below the rim a little bit for his height. So I, I, there's a very narrow path to him succeeding. And I think I see it. He's got to shoot well. And I don't know if he can, we'll, we'll find out. Well, speaking of shooting one guy who crept onto the national radar during the playoffs and the end of the season last year, that might've been a little bit overlooked during the pre-draft process was Marcus Howard. Um, I think he very much is who he is and, it, and let you kind of explain to the people what that might be, but yeah. what are, what are your hopes for him kind of long-term sprinkling in with the Nuggets organization? I don't have huge hopes for him to be honest in large part because he's five foot nine. He's just so small. I mean, that's the thing is if he was six foot two, he would be a, a piece, you know, at, at minimum a bench score, microwave score. He had nine three pointers last night in the preseason game. He had 31 points nine and they all came in like a 15 minute stretch. I mean, the guy gets hot and he doesn't miss. Um, but to your point, he is a bit of a one trick pony in that he is a shooter and he's not going to pass. He's not really going to do anything dynamic in the pick and roll but he's just constantly looking for an opportunity to get to that sidestep three-pointer that he shoots so well. Um, he'll be in the G League this year. I, it, From the weirdest circumstances, he found himself playing playoff minutes last year. I mean, it was one of those things where it was like a, a million different things went bad for Denver that they had to rely on Marcus Howard in the playoffs. And to be honest, he stepped up. He, he had some impressive outings and, and made some shots. But to me, he is he reminds me of a Jimmer Fredette where he is just good enough that if you put him down in the G League, he's going to have some six, seven, eight, three-point games. But you bring him up to the NBA, and he's a five-foot-nine guard who can't pass or dribble. Yeah, it's. I think he's going to continue to get shots around the league. Somebody's going to want to bet on his offense and say, well, let's give this guy a try. Let's give this guy a try. He's so polished at what he does. Can we mask his deficiencies? I, don't, I agree with you. I don't know if Denver ever is going to be that, that place long-term with the Murray injury, having him on, you know, in the G league and being ready to come up at any moment in time is impactful. Um, but long-term it might be hard for him to carve out a, a meaningful backup role behind a guy like Jamal. So I don't think the bad boys Pistons could make up for his defensive <laughs> deficiencies and they're not even like bad form. It's just, he's five, nine, not a very good wingspan. He's kind of stocky. So usually if you have a short guy, maybe they're super quick. He's not really quick. So he really just is a great shooter and not a whole lot else. Yeah. yeah. Well, Adam, last thing before we let you get out of here is just the general overall philosophy that you've seen from the Nuggets front office in terms of how they treat player development and prospects, the draft and what types of players they look for, specifically leaning into the offense long-term, knowing that that's going to be their bread and butter. Or do you think this is a roster that's ripe for adding another kind of defense first piece? I, they, I don't know that, and this is an interesting philosophy, a couple things on the Tim Conley era. One, he always said that when he got hired, he thought he'd be fired very quickly. He's like, I'm here, here for a good time, not a long time. And because of that, I think he's approached this with a really good mind frame of why not swing for the fence? If you get one at bat in the majors, why not go for the homer? <laughs> you know, nobody wants to get walked and, and you're one at bat. And so he's taken a bunch of big swings on players that have tragic flaws. That's one of the, so if you talk about the MO, they have looked for guys that Michael Porter, oh, he's gonna miss a year and maybe needs a back surgery. Nobody, no other GM has the job security. I'll take him. Uh, you know, Monte Morris, he's too small, we'll take him. Marcus Howard, too small, we'll take him. 
all these guys that have a tragic flaw and they're willing to roll the dice on him. But another thing we joke about here in Denver is that Tim Conley, you remember back a couple months ago, we had the basketball Twitter had the conversation, basketball player or hooper. <laughs> Tim Conley is a hooper. I think he yeah. loves hoopers. He gets a lot of hoopers, especially in the backcourt. So you asked a lot of um, us analysts here in Denver were really intrigued with Jaden Springer as this like, oh, he's a defender. He's strong. That's the opposite of a Tim Conley player. Like he doesn't, he can't dribble or shoot, right? He's not, he's, he's a defender, but he doesn't necessarily have a dynamic offense. Bones Highland, can he defend? I don't know, but that guy can hoop. And so I think the philosophy, especially with regards to finding defenders is more, those are guys you could probably find overseas, veterans, other teams, you know, find guys to plug in. If you're using draft capital, we're going for hoopers. We're going for guys that can play basketball and we'll try to teach them everything else. Jeff and Jamichael Green, you can find those guys that come in and right. help your rotation and, and be yeah. those defenders anywhere you want. But you got one crack at a Michael Porter right. Jr., a Bones Highland. Yep. And it's when you've got that draft pick and you own their rights for four years and you get to look at everybody around the league and say, look at you, idiots. You didn't take right. this guy. Exactly. So, Adam, thank you so much for, for coming on, talking Denver Nuggets and running down the season ahead. Please let the people know where they can find you, what work you have going on right now, and, and kind of what's on your radar. Um, so people don't know DNVR, the company I own and, and, and we run here in Denver, it's a really unique company. And I would tell people to go check out our YouTube page where we have a lot of cool videos. We do post game shows for every Nuggets game in a really unique way. And we have our Nuggets preview series out right now uh, where we go every player. We do about 20 minutes on each player. And it's a real healthy mix of basketball film study with absolute ridiculous humor and a little bit of everything. And that's kind of how we've made our wheelhouses. I feel like we do some deep dive analytical stuff. We do some exclusive interview stuff. And then we do, sometimes we put on costumes and do role play stuff and it's just fun and silly and what I think sports should be. You guys have done an unbelievable job getting that site off the ground. Hats off to you. I, I had an amazing time coming on with you during the, the pre-draft process and with all the fancy intros and tech that you guys had, no, nothing made me feel more official than that. So uh, again, appreciate you having me on back then, but more than anything, thank you for joining us here today and uh, wishing the best for the Nuggets this year. Thanks so much, Adam.